Well, let's, uh, let's turn to the Word. And uh, I've got two passages I want to uh, read with you. Um, so the first is uh, Romans chapter 3. And then the second is Romans 10. So if you put your finger in there. Uh, Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> We're thinking today about um, saving faith, or faith, what is faith? And, uh, and for that we, we need to understand uh, the function of faith and how it comes to us. Uh, so let me read first of all from Romans 3.21. And uh, Paul, writing to the Roman church, says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then if you jump ahead to chapter 10, uh, just four verses, uh, in verse 14. And he's uh, <clears throat> talking about how God bestows his riches upon all who call on him, uh, because all will be, who call on him will be saved. And he says in verse 14, How are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray for a moment. Father, again we come into your presence and we crave the presence of your Holy Spirit to come and shed light on the pages of Scripture for us um, and what the Bible has to say about faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been thinking the last couple of weeks about uh, what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. Um, So... We've thought about two things so far in the last two weeks. Firstly, that how does God, how God calls people, and I don't mean just that uh, you know the gospel is preached to everyone, but actually, how does uh, God effectually call someone? How does God uh, make His voice known to a person so that that person has that sense of being called by God? and being drawn to God. Uh, So we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, God calls his own people to himself and gives them to his son. 
And, and then we thought about the other end of that call. So God does the calling at this side. And on this side, uh, we do the hearing. But something else is happening in the hearer. And the last time we looked at regeneration uh, or being born again, something happens in the life of the hearer who is being effectually called. You're, you become new as a person, a new creature. Uh, or you're resurrected from the dead, Ephesians chapter 2. Or you're born again, John chapter 3. All of these um, images are used to describe what happens to somebody when they become a Christian. They become like a new person because they start hearing Jesus Christ. Now because of that regeneration, the thing that happens inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit, because of that, certain other things begin to be experienced by the Christian. This new Christian, what... What are those? Well, today I want to think about one of those experiences. One of those experiences is the experience of now believing when previously you didn't. And, uh, in other words, the gift of faith that God gives. That people who are called by God, who are born again of the Spirit of God, now are able to believe in Jesus Christ. And the New Testament speaks a great deal about saving faith. Just a, a few example verses. Uh, Romans 1, 20, uh, 17. For in, it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Um, faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Interesting. That's an Old Testament verse. And that's always been by faith. And it's still by faith. It's by faith. Or Romans 22 and 25, which we read a moment ago. The righteousness of God has been manifested, quote, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Or verse 25, Christ Jesus, is about Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a, a, a sacrifice that takes away the righteous wrath of God, propitiation. Uh, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So that blessing of Jesus Christ and the work that he did 2,000 years ago is now received by faith. The blessing of it. Uh, God applies it to us. And then one more verse, Hebrews 11 verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's, uh, faith has this urge within to go to God and to seek his face and to get close to him. That's what faith, uh, saving faith does. So I want to just get to what this saving faith is actually, what this real faith is like. Um, so it's a bit of an experiment uh, this morning. I warned Falco this morning. Because um, I'm going to kind of, it may seem to you like I'm going around the houses a little bit before I get to faith. But I need to kind of situate it properly, I think. Um, you tell me at the end whether you think I've succeeded or not. But um, first of all, I want to just consider with you the, the state of the human heart and its condition that actually uh, within which faith comes and why it helps. Secondly, I want to just think with you about Christ himself and how, how Christ changes or, or, or addresses the condition of the heart. 
And so thirdly, how then true faith in this Christ, actually uh, what, it, what it consists of. It's really important that we get the idea of faith right. Um, lots of false ideas of what faith is. So I'm going to start almost from the ground up and work up. Uh, considering, first of all, the human heart and its condition. So, uh, <clears throat> Proverbs 4.23. One of those verses I learned as a young Christian, as a student in the 1980s. Um, I learned it in the NIV, so I can't... So this is a different version. This is the English Standard Version. But 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So your heart is absolutely essential uh, to your life. Now, what do we mean by heart? What does the Bible mean by heart? And the Bible doesn't mean that muscle in your chest that pumps your blood around and keeps you alive. That's important. (laughs) Uh, But the Bible, when it's speaking about the heart, is speaking about something else. It's speaking about you as the inner person. It's to do with your inner life, not just your body, but your inner life. And it consists of three things. So let me just work through those three things with you. The first of all, it's the, the heart consists of the mind, the thinking, that what we think about and the things that we think we know. And of course, being a human mind, it is of limited size and capability. Some of us more limited than others, no doubt. And some of us more capable than others. But, and so human life consists of an exploration of things and experiences that tell us about our existence. But the most important part of that experience of growth and knowledge of the mind is to know God. That's something we can't escape from. And no matter how many men and women, boys and girls, say to you, oh, I don't believe in God, you know, I have no need for God, and so on. There's actually something in you that you cannot deny. Uh, and there's something outside of you you cannot deny. So Paul, Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, to all the unrighteous people, to all people who are uh, running away from God. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So every single human being is without excuse when it comes to God. There's evidence everywhere that God exists and his attributes are are known to, to some degree. But here's the problem. People live in unrighteousness. People are rebels against God. And rebellion has an effect on the mind. uh, It corrupts the mind. So Paul also goes on to say, next verse, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So your mind gets messed up with all your sin and all your unrighteousness such that you cannot think clearly. It's important to reflect on this. 
Uh, people generally think that they are clear thinkers. Do you ever know anybody who doesn't think they're a clear thinker? Um, they always got very firm opinions about everything. Um, but the Bi- what the Bible shows us is that without God, there's a certain futility that comes into our thinking. Whatever you think you're thinking, without God, it doesn't amount to much. There's a severe limit on the progress you can make in your mind and your true you know, knowledge of what things that really matter because of your sin and unrighteousness. So that's the first thing. The heart consists of the mind. Second thing is the heart consists of your desires or your affections. So the things you love. Uh, what do you set your heart upon? That's all part of your inner life, your, uh, your, um, your heart. And we are made to love God. We're actually formed that way. God shaped us that way. So he says to his covenant people in Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, everything about you, you're going to give yourself, you should give yourself to love the Lord your God. That's why we're made. But again, our unrighteousness warps all those desires. So our desires get messed up. So our mind gets messed up. Our desires get messed up. And a certain kind of twistedness comes into us. It even affects Christians, new Christians. Uh, so we, it takes a while to unravel it all as Christians. So James, for example, he writes to his, his Christian friends in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He says, you know, he's talking about trouble in church. And most churches know some kind of trouble or other. And he says, what, quarrels, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. Uh, So everything gets corrupted with us. Your desires because of your sin. Um, Often people try and stand on high principle uh, when there's quarrels and fights in churches. And actually what James is pointing out is often the real root cause is the passions that are disordered that mess things up. Uh, So without God, all our passions, all our desires get directed to what is not good and leads to evil. So it's, you know, as, as you think about the modern culture, to say love wins, which is very common today, love wins, and whatever you do, love wins. Um... It actually is not enough. Because if your desires are disordered and directed at the wrong things, then of course love doesn't win. Love messes things up. That kind of love messes things up. So the heart is the mind, it's the desires. The last thing is that the heart is the will. What you decide to do. And uh, what we do in life, the decisions that we make, the actions that follow, are driven by what we think we know, the mind, and what we actually love, the heart, uh, the, the, the affections, the passions. And so what we do flows out of those things. And so if your mind and your heart and your affections are all messed up, then of course what you do is going to be messed up as well. You're always going to choose things that are uh, not what God has made us for.
Now, my point in outlining all of this is to show that left to ourselves, in every way that our, every aspect of our life that truly matters, we are incapable of rightly relating to God. We cannot think straight about God. We cannot love him and therefore find our true blessedness and reward in him. We cannot, uh, we simply don't want to know him and we don't want to do the things that he wants us to do. That's what sin does. So left to ourselves, mankind is utterly helpless. That's why the Bible describes people who are not Christians as dead in trespasses and sins. Dead people can't do anything about their state of deadness. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And therefore, we need a saviour and a rescuer. We need somebody to come into our lives and rescue us from all our sin and iniquity and transgression. Somebody who can come and, as it were, raise us to life. That's, of course, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so that's the problem of the human heart. And Jesus Christ comes. So let's think now, secondly, about how Jesus Christ addresses the human heart. Now, of course, the the heart of the gospel is the historical events of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the center, it's the most important thing. Uh, The thing of first importance, as Paul puts it. And... uh, He has suffered on behalf of sinners, taken, he is the propitiatory sacrifice, he has borne the wrath of God on our behalf because of our sin, and so he takes away the wrath of God. And then he is raised to life for our justification, in other words, to make us right with God. And we'll come to justification later in this series. But he does these amazing things in history for our benefit. What we want to think about today is, and in this series, is how that accomplishment that happened 2,000 years ago is applied now to believers today. How it changes us. And so what we need to consider is how does Jesus perfectly, how is he perfectly suited to the condition of our hearts that we've just described? And we see this by realizing that he is the Son of God is the Christ. He is the anointed one. Now if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that there are three anointed offices. Prophet, priest, king. And usually that was all different people. But here in Jesus, we see that he is the Christ, the anointed one. The prophet, the priest, the king. So what are the implications of that fact, that he is prophet, priest, and king? First of all, as prophet, the prophet, not just a prophet, he brings God's words to us. In other words, he is able to instruct our broken, fallen minds. And he is able to restore and renew our minds so that we can begin to think clearly again. He is our prophet. Secondly, he's our priest. Now, a priest is an intercessor. He interceded for us on the cross. He took 
our punishment on our behalf. So he intercedes for us on the cross. But now he continues to intercede for us. As he is exalted into heaven, he prays for us. He represents us in heaven. Without him we are nothing. But he is our anchor, the anchor for our souls. And he is our high priest. He is able, therefore, in his priestly position to deal with our disordered desires. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, Christ as priest deals with our disordered desires and begins to reorientate them into desiring and loving God and all that he wants for us. Thirdly, as king, in all his authority, he is able to subdue and strengthen our wills so that we become committed to him and to his will. Now, all of this prophet, priestly, and kingly ministry begins to take, take effect as we are born again and we trust in Jesus Christ. We trust in him. How do we get Jesus into our life? Well, it's through faith. Through faith in him. So let me just deal finally, and this will take a bit longer. What does true faith consist of? What does true faith consist of? So the passage we read in Romans chapter 3 shows us that the way that we receive salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, In other words, we don't have to do anything uh, we don't have to contribute anything. We don't, have to, we don't actually have anything to contribute. We get nothing to give to God. Not even our good works. Nothing is sufficient to save us. Your good works are like filthy rags, says Isaiah. God says through Isaiah. None of our good works are sufficient to save. And so what we need is one who is perfectly clean and righteous the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to him by faith. Now how does that happen? Well that's why we read from verse chapter 10. Uh, that uh, How does somebody come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's through someone being sent to preach the gospel. Somebody being sent to outline what the gospel is. To present Jesus Christ. To, to preach Christ. And when somebody is hearing the gospel being preached and is the, the Holy Spirit is at work giving them new life and causing them to believe what they hear. In fact, what Romans 10.14 says is that it's not just that you hear a preacher, it's that you hear him. Him whom they, they have heard. You hear Jesus Christ speaking to you. And this is how somebody comes to a living faith in Christ and this As the gospel is preached, the beginning of that renovative work by the Holy Spirit starts. And you believe, and you experience that as believing what you're hearing. Now let me talk to you now about what this faith consists of then. And let me first warn you about what it's not. It is not simply a religious feeling. Um... Some people have that, have that sort of religious feeling and it drives them to all kinds of religious works. It doesn't matter what religion you're in. People have a kind of religion, a religious feeling that they drives them along. They talk about that as faith. 
This is not what the Bible talks about as saving faith. Nor is it simply a desire to go to church. Good though that is. And I warmly encourage you to keep coming to church morning and evening. That's my little hobby horse. Keep coming. It's good though, but it's not going to save you. That in itself does not save you. That's not what faith is. Uh, Some people have that habit. They may even enjoy it, but they may not have saving faith. You can do all the right things, but in your heart you can still be far from God. You don't have saving faith necessarily just because you come to church. So what does this faith consist of? Well, let me mention three things. And I'm going to plunder the reformers of the 16th century. Sorry. (laughs) But, uh, you know, they, they discovered a great many things rediscovered a great many things. And one of the things, uh, they were able to, to, ca- to categorize different aspects of what saving faith is. So what's the first thing? Three things. First thing is knowledge. Knowledge. Faith consists of knowledge. In other words, you have to know certain things. You need to know about Jesus Christ, who he, who he was and is, what he did, you need to know what the gospel is, the good news that the church has preached down the centuries. You've got to know that to be able to receive it. You don't have to know it perfectly, but you have to know enough of it that you may come to Jesus Christ. But I need to warn you about something. It's not just information. This knowledge. The Bible never speaks about knowledge as simply acquiring information. Because there's plenty of people who know what the gospel is, but don't believe it. It's not just about information. No, there's more to knowledge that is part of true faith. And that is knowledge that is personal and brings you into connection with God. You see, knowing a person is not the same as knowing about a person. I've always said this many times, but I can, I can say I know King Charles, but, because he's in the news, but I, you know, I don't actually know him, do I? <laughs> I know about what people report of him, and I know that he exists, and I know the kind of things he does with his, uh, his job <laughs> as king, but I don't know him personally. I don't know what he's like. I don't know his character. I don't know what his ups and downs are. I don't know what he loves, what he hates. Um, I don't know very much at all about him. I don't know him personally. And when the Bible speaks about knowledge, it's meaning that personal knowledge. That, And here's the thing about the gospel when it's preached to you. And you begin to experience that God is speaking to you, that Jesus Christ is speaking to you. Is that you have that sense. Yes, you understand the information the, the story, the, the kind of general shape of the gospel. But you also have this sense that you're coming into the presence of God. That in a sense you know him and you can't escape from him. And it's this knowledge that the reformers are talking about. That you have a sense of the presence of God in your life. That you cannot escape from. And you may not be able to put words to that immediately. But you know that you are in the presence of greatness and glory. How many of us become Christians? 
I've had that experience where you've gone through the process. You know, I, I remember going as a Christian, as a student, going through the evidences for the resurrection and thinking, this is all a very interesting intellectual discussion. And we can, I can fire my torpedoes at them and they can try and, uh, I can try and torpedo this idea and they keep throwing back at me the reasons why it's got to be true. And so you have this back and forth intellectual discussion. And then there came a moment where that, there was that sense that Jesus Christ was in the room. And in that sense, I knew him. And I couldn't escape. This is what we mean by knowledge. In the presence of glory. So faith consists of that sense of the presence of God. Secondly, faith consists of assent, what does that mean? It means... A, a conscious mental agreeing with the truth of what has been preached in the gospel. Now, what's really important here about this idea of assent is it's actually not something you can decide about. People often think that, there are some people who think that faith, Christian faith, is a matter of simply deciding. In spite of evidence, you know, Richard Dawkins, for example, 20 years ago was talking about faith as being in contrary to evidence. You believe in God and how can you do that when there's no evidence, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so his definition of faith is faith in spite of evidence. But true faith is never like that. There has to be something compelling about the proposition. There has to be something compelling for a person to believe it. There has to be something kind of inescapable about what is believed. For example, if I were in my right mind, big if, I would not step off the the edge of a cliff and expect to float gently down to the bottom. You know... If I was in my right mind, I would not do that. Why? Because I've seen other things fall to the ground. I've seen how fast they fall. I've even calculated the terminal velocity of something falling unrestrainedly. It's something like 120 miles an hour or something like that. It's some ridiculous number. And, uh, you know, when you hit the ground, you'll be flat. You'll be a two-dimensional person, more or less. (laughs) Um, I shouldn't mock these things, but... You know, there's something compelling about this idea that I shouldn't step off the cliff. It's not, it's not just down to a decision. I'm compelled to believe it. And all sorts of other things in life you are compelled to believe, like uh, Pythagoras' theorem. You know, you mathematicians amongst us. You know, what, why believe that? Because it works. You know, you can prove it mathematically. And you're compelled to believe it. There's always something compelling about the things that you believe. It's never simply a choice. And the same with the gospel. You are compelled, somehow or other, there's something inescapable about this ascent to the truth. You cannot escape it. Because God so presents it to you that you cannot argue with it. It's not a choice to believe at all. And that's the experience of many people who become Christians. 
that they have this inescapable sense that they have to do this. They have to believe this. They cannot not believe it. You willingly assent to the truth of the gospel. So faith consists of knowledge. It consists of assent. And thirdly, lastly, it consists of trust. Trust. And this is the true heart of Christian faith. Trust. It means being willing to surrender yourself into the hands of someone else to save and restore you. It's rather like putting yourself into the hands of a fireman who's rescuing you out of a, a burning building. I don't know if anybody's ever had that experience. I haven't, but you, know, you can imagine it. But you have to put yourself into the hands of a fireman who knows the way out and has to, to get you down that ladder, which sounds terrifying, but you, know, you have to trust the, the fireman. He knows what he's doing. Or it's like putting yourself in the hands of a surgeon who's going to anesthetize you before cutting you up. You think, what a crazy thing to do. Put yourself completely in the hands of a stranger you've never met before. And yet we do it. Because we trust them. We know they're qualified. We know they have the ability. They have a track record of successful operations. We trust them. And this is what it means to trust Jesus. You put yourself in his hands. It means counting the cost of becoming a believer and deciding it's worth it, no matter what the cost is. And it may be costly to become a Christian, to to go into this, to have this faith. You may have to give up your worldly honor. You may have to give up your wealth. You may have to, it may cost you your friendships. In some ways, in some circumstances, it may literally cost you your life. But you entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. Why would anyone do that? Because you see the value of Jesus Christ. You see him and you believe him. You have that sense that you're in the presence of God. You feel that there's something inescapable about the content of the gospel message, something you can't run away from, and you have that sense that Jesus is utterly trustworthy to keep you safe. And so, friends, this true faith is not a religious feeling. Nor is it simply a vaguely positive attitude towards God if he exists. It's not simply coming to church and participating in worship and fellowship. It's something that comes with Jesus Christ where he is supremely suited in his prophetic ministry, in his priestly ministry, in his kingly ministry. To meet our need and save us from all our sins. And it brings us into fellowship with God, where we know Him, where we agree with Him, where we assent to everything He has said, and we trust Him utterly with our lives. Is that your faith today? Is your faith alive? Does it connect with Jesus Christ so that you know Him? And through that incarnate Jesus Christ, does your faith connect you with the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So that you have that sense that you know him. I pray it be so for every single one of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit who applies his saving work to us. 
Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, and now from the throne of heaven you have sent your Spirit. And we pray that you grant us all true saving faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.